0: Hey, Kairos. It is so good to see you. My name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor here at Hope Ames. Also going to be a part of Kairos. Hello to those of you who are in the balcony. Hello to those of you who are on the floor. Hello to those of you who are joining us in Iowa City. It's another Wednesday. And can you believe we only have four Kairos Wednesday nights left? I'm a little sad. I mean, it's good because you get to go on summer break. But uh, it is a little sad to me. But I will tell you what, we're going to make the most Of these next four weeks. Thanks for coming out in the rain tonight. You guys stayed dry decently on the way in. You feeling good? I saw somebody come in who was soaked, and somebody come in who was dry. Turns out the one who was soaked had just taken a shower, and I thought that maybe the friend hadn't shared their umbrella. But we're actually good to go. It seems like the rain held off. For the most part. Well, hey, we're in the last week of our series called Jesus Went, and we took one more week in this series because we wanted to make sure that we hopped in this series one more time after Easter. Tonight we're looking at Jesus Came Back. In the Christian tradition, we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so we're tonight looking at the final days Jesus spent on earth, but we're not talking about Jesus' time spent before his death, but instead the days Jesus spent after his death. We believe Jesus came back from death. And of course, that means that we get eternal life, but what are the nuances? What are the things that we get here today? Those are some of the things that I want to talk about. We're going to get there, but first, we've got to go through a little bit of groundwork. I think that one of the greatest inventions of modern society is the delete button. I mean, seriously, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I really believe that. Imagine when you were back in early elementary school, and you had to scramble to delete everything, you know what I mean? But you couldn't just hit a button, and said you had to erase it. Or if you wrote something in ink, you had to scribble it out. Have you ever written a letter before and you get to the last line and there's just one mistake and that note means just enough that you have to start the entire thing over again? You wish that you could have a delete button just to delete it and pretend like it was never there. My wife, Abby, she is a first grade teacher. And she says that sometimes her students will just have it with erasing. They're done with it. It's too much work. It takes too much time. And so instead they end up with things like this where maybe they put a comma at the end of their sentence, but instead they just put a big old blob on top of that. I'm not deleting it. I'm not erasing it. I'm done with it. I'm just going to cover it up. My personal favorite is this next one here. She's asking her students, do you like the T-Rex or the, tricer- the Triceratops better? This one says uh, T-Rex and Triceratops are a different thing they I don't know what that says, they, they like to eat, Triceratops like to eat plants and T-Rex like to eat is meat. Makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> but nonetheless, here's this student who's like trying to erase, trying to get, ah, like, oh, forget it and just writes right on over it. It's why the delete button is so nice. You can just type, make a mistake, erase it and pretend like it never happened. It's clean. It's not messy. Typing is fun. I remember when I was switching schools from fourth to fifth grade. My family moved just a few miles, but it was, en- it was enough of a move to where I was switching school districts. In the school district that I was in all the way through fourth grade, typing was emphasized in fifth grade. And the school that I started in fifth grade, typing was emphasized in fourth grade. So little Danny was quite behind. It was terrifying. we take these typing tests, and all of a sudden, the delete button was eliminated. they take it away. And so every single word that you typed would count for a word that you could get per minute, right? Do you remember these tests? You know what I'm talking about? Now keep in mind, like, I get it. I did this in fifth grade. Some of you were like, I did that when I was three. You know, we didn't get iPads when you were born 20 years ago, 28 years ago. But anyway, so I would type, right? And I set the school record for the worst, the lowest score. Because every single word that you typed counted for you, but every single mistake that you made took a word away. You might not think this is possible, but I scored negative words per minute in fifth grade. It's possible. It happened. But of course, growing up in the digital age, I got better, and I got better, and I got better. And so today, I took two typing tests. I scored 76 words per minute, and I came back like a lion and got 85 words per minute. Average is 36. I'm just saying, okay? I share that with you to let you know that if you believe, you can achieve. I got a lot better at typing, but it didn't always help me out because when the delete button went away again, it was really stressful. When I was in college, I took a lit class, and my (laughs) professor, a lit the class was so lit, literature class. (laughs) The professor was lit too, you know. I had a literature professor in college, and for our essay exams, he wanted us to write handwritten exams in ink. He wanted us to write these all the way through. And it was so stressful. It was excruciating. Because you'd be sitting there thinking, what if I mess up? You'd get halfway through the answer, and you'd think, I, I changed my mind. I, 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 I don't agree with what I said before. Moby Dick, it is about a whale. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you have no clue, and you're very confused. What did he just say? But anyway, our professor was this really neat guy. He said, listen, if you change your mind halfway through the sentence, just own it the next sentence by saying I changed my mind if you want, scribble out the entire paper that you've written but leave the mess he was this master writer and he wanted us to become good writers but he was more concerned with our sincerity with our authenticity he didn't want us to pretend to be perfect but to be honest about the process the delete button is nice because it gives us comfort in pretending like we can be perfect just delete it, send it away, the mess is gone but it's not real I appreciate what my literature professor had us do. He wanted us to be honest about the process. He wanted us to be authentic and sincere. He didn't want us to pretend to be perfect. In the Bible, there was a guy who wanted to be perfect. He tried really hard to be perfect. His name was Simon. You might know him as Peter, but originally his name was Simon. Jesus renamed him Peter But before, Jesus had a reason to give him the name of Peter is because Peter saw this guy, or Jesus saw this guy, Simon, and he said, he's a leader. I I, I see a lot of potential in this guy. Simon was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his fiercest, most fiery, passionate disciples. And when Jesus meets him, he says, I'm going to call you Peter. It says here in John chapter 1, the beginning of the book that we're studying tonight, it says, looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now we don't necessarily know exactly what that means in the book of John, but the book of Matthew does identify it for us in the English translations, and it tells us this, what what, Matt, what Jesus is really calling John, excuse me, what Jesus is really calling Simon, who will now be Peter. He says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. What a title. What a name. In the book of John, it told us that Jesus looked intently at Simon. What, interesting, what, what an interesting way to say that. He looks at him closely. It's as if Jesus has seen Simon. He says, I see the real you. I see the process that you're in. I see you. I see who you want to be. I see who you pretend to be. I see who you want other people to perceive you to be. I see the real you. And I say you're Peter. I say you're a rock. This is what Jesus has to say about his friend, Simon Peter. What a statement. What an amazing calling. It also has a lot of expectation on it, doesn't it? You're the rock. You're solid. I wonder if Peter felt like he had to live up to something huge. I wonder if Peter felt like he had to be perfect, the rock, solid. Like I said, Peter is known to be one of Jesus' most fierce, fiery, passionate disciples. He's going to be there with Jesus. He's going to be there. He's not going to leave his side. Jesus, I got your back. In John chapter 6, Jesus goes through this teaching, and then it says that many of Jesus' disciples abandoned him. They left. It's not necessarily the 12 disciples that we read about often, but people who had gotten used to following Jesus. Jesus taught, and They left. And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples. He said, are you going to leave me too? Not Peter. No, no, no. Not the rock. Peter responds to Jesus and he says, no, Lord, to whom should we go? We know that you are the ones who has the word of eternal life. You're you're the only one who has the word of eternal life. We got nowhere else to go. I'm your rock, Jesus. I'm not going anywhere. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is walking on water. It's crazy. And I know when we see that scene, we like to just see Jesus doing this. But I wonder if Jesus is like stepping over the wave, you know, Peter sees that and he's like, I want in. I want to do this. And so he says, Jesus, if it's really you, call out to me. I'm solid. I'm steady Eddie. I'm there for you. You called me Peter. I can live up to this. And so Jesus says, yeah, come on out. Come on, walk, Peter. My rock's steady. You're there for me. You're solid. Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking. He's walking with the real feeling Jesus. He's feeling good. But Peter has some hiccups too. He makes big time promises. But he can't always live up to them. Here's one of the biggest promises that Peter ever made. Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going you're to deny me. You're not going to be the rock that I've called you to be. You're going to fall. You're going to sink. In Matthew chapter 14, Peter is walking on the water. He has his eyes on Jesus, but then his fear overwhelms him. And he starts to sink into the water. And Jesus tells him, Peter, you're vulnerable to sinking. This is the night when Jesus was going to be betrayed, handed over to the Roman officials, and eventually led to his death. And Jesus is saying this, and Peter's like, I'm not going to let it happen. Absolutely not. No way. But, Peter, but Jesus responds. He says, yes, of course. He said, this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. You're going to bail on me. You're not going to be steady. You're going to move. You're going to run. And Peter says, no, no. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Never. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Peter's trying so hard. He's fiery. He's passionate. He's fierce for Jesus. I'm steady. I'm not going anywhere. You called me your rock. I wonder if Peter felt like he had to be perfect, and I wonder if he thought that Jesus needed him to be perfect. You need me. You need me. You won't go anywhere without me, right? I'll help you. I'm your rock, right? But Peter finds himself in situations where he's over-promising and under-delivering. And pretty soon, he's going to wish that he could delete all those promises that he made to make it clean again, to start over. You ever over-promised and under-delivered? When I was in high school, I was working at a shoe store in the mall. And uh, we had, like, these quotas, right? Like, we had to... We had to sell a certain amount of shoes. And with each sale, they wanted us to be able to sell multiple items. And with each shoe sale, they also wanted us to sell like, this cleaner product that would clean the shoes. These do not necessarily look like the shoes that I was selling. Um, these are $3 from Walmart. But if anybody is a size 6, needs a pair, and you still want them after this sermon, let me know. Um, and so one day, I decided that I was going mean, I to step up to the plate. I was going to make some big time sales. I was making some promises. I'm gonna be that employee for this company. I'm gonna be solid as a rock. I can do this. It was also on that same day where my grandma was coming into the store to visit me and to buy some shoes for me, and I knew that my grandma loved me, so I asked my grandma for some help. I was going to sell the shoes and the shoe cleaner to meet the quota for the store, because I'm that rock, I'm that steady guy for this company, and I'm gonna do it by means of a demonstration. So I gather multiple customers. I mean, I, I, like, this sounds like we were like, in some like, like a coliseum auditorium. Behold ye, shoes, you know. But my grandma's there, and she's looking at these shoes. And they're, they're, they're very bright. They're very white shoes. And I've got a few customers around me. And I'm thinking, if I can just show them all how great this cleaning product is, they'll all buy it. I promise them, this product is so good. Look what I can do. I will take permanent marker on these brand new pair of shoes. And I'm going to risk my reputation with this company. I'm going to clean it. You don't think I can? What? And the crowd was going wild. You know, They're just digging into every single word that I was saying. I was eating it up. It was going great until I pull out the cleaning product, I put it on the shoe, and I pull out a towel, and I start, as the instructions say, lightly dabbing. Nothing's happening. And so I add a little bit more product, and I dab a little harder. And then I add some more product, and now I'm scrubbing so hard that I'm beginning to sweat, and I'm burning a hole through the shoe. And I'm standing there with a brand new pair of shoes in front of my grandma and in front of other customers at the store with ruined new shoes. All I wanted to do in that moment was to hit delete. Say, let's start over. Can I not make those promises again? Can we just make this clean one more time? This is terrible. Easily, easily the most humiliating moment of my early professional career. I don't know how I bounced back from that, people. <laughs> I wanted to hit delete so bad. I'd over-promised, and then I under-delivered. Man, You needed redemption. Let's hop back to our friend Peter. Peter had made some big time promises, but he seems unable to deliver on it. He's human. He's Peter. He's the rock. But he's also Simon. There's this scene that seems to be going by so fast. It's so chaotic, it's out of control. Jesus gets arrested in the garden, and Peter, again, he wants to be, you know, the rock for Jesus. He wants to stand up for Jesus. He wants to be steady for Jesus. He pulls out his sword, and he tries to kill one of the guards. He doesn't have great aim, so he just cuts off the ear of one of the guards instead. Jesus heals him, puts him back together. Peter says, well, don't you want me to defend you? You need me, right? I have to be the one who saves you. I'm your rock, Jesus. I have to be perfect. And you need me to be perfect, Right? Right? That's why I'm your rock. That's why you called me that. I'm Peter. But they take Jesus away. And as Peter's following Jesus at a distance, some of the gospel accounts will tell us, Peter's trying to remain faithful. He's trying to stick with Jesus. He's trying to be the rock. But then everything goes out of control. It says that there's a woman who approaches Jesus and he says, Hey, aren't you one of the people who followed him? You're, you're one of his disciples, Right? Jesus says, or Peter says, no. No. I mean, it twists that quickly. It's ama- it twists just like that. Peter goes from cutting a guy's ear off to protect Jesus and guard Jesus and stick with Jesus to now just simply one person in the crowd asks him, hey, you're not one of, the, one of his followers, are you? And Peter says, no. No, I'm not. And suddenly this rock, one of Jesus' best friends, has denied that he's ever even met him. The text tells us that right after Peter says this, it says that there's a fire. There's a charcoal fire. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it warming themselves and Peter stood with them warming himself. Now it could be something that we just kind of skim over, but it seems imperative that John, the author of this, is trying to let us know, hey, notice that Peter was standing by a charcoal fire. Notice what he's doing. Because just before Peter is about to deny Jesus a second and a third time, it says once again, Peter, warming himself by the charcoal fire, was asked again. Didn't you know that, man? Peter decides that he's going to stand by a charcoal fire and warm himself. To get comfortable. To protect himself. Jesus used to be the very cause for which Peter lived. And now Peter is turning to things just to stay alive. Just so he won't die. This charcoal fire. It's Peter trying to warm himself. It's Peter trying to comfort himself. It's Peter trying to secure himself. It's Peter trying to preserve himself. I think John, the author here, is trying to point something out. In denying Jesus, Peter's getting comfortable. I was your rock, but I'm rolling away. I wish I could hit delete and just start over. This is too much for me. In the book of Luke, it tells us that as soon as Peter denies Jesus for the third time standing around this charcoal fire warming himself. Says at that very moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. I'm not a rock. I'm not steady. I'm Simon. He ran. What's your charcoal fire? What's the thing that you believe can preserve you? That's comforting you? The last thing that's keeping your worth warm. Keeping you able to hang in there. And then what happens when it burns out? I hear so much talk these days about self-confidence and self-comfort and self-love. Peter, he is trying to give himself comfort and give himself love by standing by the fire to warm himself. And I wanna tell you this, it is so important to love yourself, it is so important to care for yourself, it's so important to comfort yourself, so important to have confidence in yourself. But I just wanna tell you, as someone who has chased self-confidence, as far as I can possibly chase it, I will tell you this, myself, I am a finite person. And therefore, all of the confidence, all of the love, and all of the comfort that I can offer to myself is also finite. And eventually, I will run out of patience with myself. Eventually, I will not be able to produce the confidence, the comfort, or the love that I need to pick myself up out of the pit. And I get it, there are lots of techniques and tricks that I can teach myself and practice so I can get better, right? And those are good things to practice, But we're finite, and the truth is, on my own, I only have so much love to offer. On my own, I only have so much confidence to produce. On my own, I only have so much comfort to produce. And once it runs out, once it burns out, once I'm no longer feeling warm from those things, I'm going to have to run away and find another fire somewhere else until that one burns out to find another fire somewhere else until that one burns out until I can find another fire somewhere else. There's got to be a more sustainable comfort. There's got to be a more sustainable confidence. There's got to be a more sustainable love. Peter's ran out. He had no more love for himself. He had no more confidence in himself. He had no more comfort in himself. The fire could not warm him long enough, and he ran. I'm not Peter. I'm not who you said I am. You were wrong. I am Simon. What's your charcoal fire? The good news for Peter, the good news for you, the good news for me is that there is hope. On Sunday we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrated Jesus' victory over sin and death. And that victory over sin and death is for Peter and it's for you and it's for me. And no matter how long we've been running, how far we've been going, this victory is for us. So I'm so glad that we're to the point in the message where I get to tell you about hope. And I get to tell you that no matter how normal or how ordinary or how much of a failure you feel like you are, Jesus comes back for you. And you know this because he came back for Peter. In John chapter 21, right before the reading for tonight, Peter says to his friends, I'm going fishing. Sounds fun. Just going to relax a little bit today. Jesus has already risen from the dead, and according to the text, Jesus has appeared to the disciples twice. But the text does not acknowledge so much as eye contact between Peter and Jesus. I wonder if Peter felt like he had to hide. I wonder if John's trying to make a point that Peter didn't feel like he could be reconciled yet because he felt like Simon, not a steady rock. I'm going fishing. When Jesus met Peter for the first time, when he was still Simon, he was fishing. Peter, Simon Peter, he was a fisherman. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of people. And you're going to lead people to me. You're going to guide people to me, and I will give them everlasting life. I will make you a fisher of people. I'm calling you out of the ordinary. I'm calling you to do something extraordinary. But now Peter is saying, my confidence, my love, my care, my comfort has run out. I'm going back to the ordinary. I'm not Peter anymore. I'm Simon with maybe just a tiny little bit of Peter in me. I'm not a rock. I'm a pebble. So let's just go back to fishing. Jesus has appeared to the disciples, resurrected in the flesh twice, but Peter still says, yeah, maybe it wasn't for me. Everything Jesus said he was going to do, he's done, but maybe I'm still a pebble and not a rock. As Peter and his friends are out on the sea and they're fishing, they're getting frustrated, they're unable to catch any fish. Sometimes our failures drive us into deep frustration. We keep on trying the same thing over and over again. We go back to the old habits. We're like, I'm, I'm going to figure it out this time. You ever like tried the same task, the same, ho- the same hobby over and over and over again? Why isn't this bringing me satisfaction? Why am I not getting anything? All night it says that Peter and his friends are out on the, out on the sea. They're fishing. They're trying to find something. They can't find anything. It doesn't even tell us that they caught a little bit of fish. Just frustration, Nothing. Maybe it's because this is not the life that Peter was called to be living anymore. It says that Jesus was standing on shore. The disciples couldn't see who he was, but Jesus calls out to them and he tells them, Hey, have you caught anything? I mean, this is Jesus. He knows. He's resurrected from the dead. He's proven that he's God. He's got everything under control. But almost like playfully, he's like, Hey, have you caught anything? No, they say. Why don't you try the other side? He invites them to do. And these disciples, especially Peter, they start to experience redemption. Have you ever experienced redemption? When you were on the verge of hitting delete, so desperate to clean up the mess and pretend like nothing happened, have you ever experienced redemption? Have you ever been given the gift of grace? I was standing there in that shoe store absolutely humiliated, standing with a brand new pair of shoes that I had ruined. No one could buy these shoes. No one! As I'm starting to put the shoes back in the box, my grandma says, OK, I'm ready to buy them. Huh? No, they're ruined. Oh, yeah, and I want the, I want the cleaning product, too. Grandma went, what? To this day, she still has those shoes, marked up and all. My manager tried to convince her to receive a discount. No, I'd like to pay for them in full price. You got a great salesperson over here. I'm like, "Mm, don't. (laughs) Regardless of my success or failure, she had already made up her mind walking into the store. She was buying those shoes, full price. My success or failure was independent of her decision. I didn't have to delete my past, she dealt with my past and she redeemed me. Jesus does not feel like he has to delete your past. He deals with your past. You don't have to pretend to be perfect. You can be honest about your process. Jesus can deal with your past and redeem you. It says that Simon Peter runs to Jesus, says that he gets out of the boat when he finds out, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. John, the author author of this book, is the one who recognizes Jesus first. He says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, as soon as he hears that, he's like, I got got to go there. I got to see it. I I got to get to Jesus face to face. It's as if he has reached his breaking point. Jesus has shown up again two times before to these disciples. But now Peter, this broken man, is so hungry. He's so cold. He's run out of fires. I have nothing else. And now the text tells us that Peter is in the boat, and then he gets dressed before he gets out of the boat. How interesting. Peter was a fisherman, right? And so it was appropriate for a fisherman to be wearing the equivalent to a swimsuit when he was out there trying to gather these fish. He'd gotten soaking wet. But it says that before Peter gets out of the boat, gets into the water, and runs to Jesus, he puts his clothes on. It's as if Peter is desperate to get to Jesus, but he's not ready for Jesus to look at his past. He's not ready for, G- for Jesus to see his authentic self. He wants Jesus to still believe he's a rock. He wants to maybe show Jesus, I, I, I could redeem myself. There's this beautiful imagery that shows up. Remember, when Peter denied Jesus three, three times, Jesus said that you would deny me three times. Three times, Peter is standing around a charcoal fire. And when Peter shows up to shore, to Jesus, it says that Jesus is standing there with a charcoal fire. And immediately we're like, oh, Jesus is about to rub it in Peter's face. Oh, yeah, you better run. We'll see what your excuse is, Pete. But that's not what happens. When Jesus said, go out, you know, send your nets on the other side, it says that they caught 153 fish. They were very, very successful in that moment. Peter gets out of the boat, he runs to Jesus, he's got a boat full of fish, and then when he shows up to Jesus, the text tells us that Jesus is standing by a charcoal fire, and he's already making them breakfast. He's got fish and he's got bread. First off, how incredible of a chef do you think Jesus was? I mean, last time he had a meal with these guys, he said, this is my body, this is my blood, it's the bread, it's the, it's, it's the, blood, it's the bread, it's the wine, it's for you. I mean, this, like, I mean, God probably tastes pretty good. That's so weird. <laughs> but now he's going to cook them a meal. It wasn't about Peter's failures or successes. Jesus, showing up on the shore that day, regardless of whatever Peter could say to him, regardless of the excuses Peter could make, regardless of the speech that Peter would profess before Jesus, I won't sink on you this time. I've redeemed myself. I'm confident again. I've done it to myself. I'm a rock. I'm steady, Jesus. Regardless of the success or failures, Jesus was already going to redeem him. Peter stood by a charcoal fire of self-confidence to warm himself, but at the charcoal fire of Jesus, he would be fed eternally. This is where real confidence, real comfort, real love comes from. It's regardless of my success, regardless of my failure, I am redeemed, I am loved, I am cared for, I am comforted. Jesus deals with Peter's failure... But he comforts the failure. He comforts Peter. He gives him fish. So often. I mean, it's so easy for us sometimes as Christians to say, I'm bringing my gifts to God to help God. If I don't bring my stuff to God, God's going to sit there passively and he won't be able to do anything at all. I mean, my goodness, what if I don't preach the right sermon? How's the good news going to get to anyone? Oh, what if I don't do the perfect work? How is God's hands going to reach anyone? Oftentimes we'll say, it's not God's hands, it's our hands doing God's work. And yes, there's truth to that, absolutely. Of course, if it's God's work that we're doing, we ought to do it with all of ourselves, right? Like there is no excuse for for lazily half-living in the kingdom of God. But this, this misconception that poor Jesus is just sitting there and he can't lift up a finger until we come and help him, It's audacious. It's ridiculous. Whose hands made the sun rise this morning? Whose breath gave you the opportunity to love and to hope and to trust? Let's make this very clear. Jesus did not need Peter's fish. But he welcomed Peter anyway. And his fish. It says, he asks, hey, come on, bring your fish. I already got the food, but bring your fish. And so it is with us. Jesus does not need our resources, our gifts, our talents, but he welcomes us. He invites us, regardless of the success or the failure. And how much confidence, how much love, how much comfort can you find in that, in this charcoal fire? In this fire, the Bible compares God's love to a consuming fire. The Bible compares God in the Old Testament to a fire. It's burning up a bush, but the leaves aren't, aren't, the the leaves, the the fire is burning, but the leaves aren't burning up. It's as if to say that this flame is self-sustaining. I don't have to produce my own love for myself. I don't have to produce my own confidence for myself. I don't have to produce my own comfort for myself. Jesus has all the confidence, love, and comfort that I could ever need. And here's the difference. I will eventually run out of confidence, love, and comfort to produce on my own. But Jesus never, the eternal God, King of creation, never runs out of love, comfort, care, confidence to pour into his people. So what if the world, this kind of woke uh, society, tells you you're not welcome here? Jesus Christ accepts you. So what if some self-righteous religious club rejects you? Jesus Christ receives you. What's your charcoal fire? Who's keeping you warm? Who's your rock? Jesus isn't done with Peter. He makes it very intentionally. He has this conversation with Peter. He pulls him aside and he asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? How crushing. He doesn't call him Peter. I called you the rock. But Simon, you love me? Simon responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He says it one time. He says it a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Back a screen. Simon says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. It's interesting, sometimes in English we miss some of the beauty of the way that biblical authors wrote. I'm careful when I do this because I don't want you to think that you can't read your Bible in English and get God's word. You are getting God's word. But I'd like to help you see something tonight. When Jesus talks to Simon here, he says, do you love me? And the word that he uses for love is agape. Everybody say agape. And the word that Simon responds with is a word that also means love, but it's phileo. Everybody say phileo. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Now, these two words, they do kind of have somewhat different meanings, but deep down, these words are interchangeable throughout the book of John. But perhaps the artistry that John is trying to portray is the love that Jesus is trying to tell Simon. You can have this for me. Simon's saying, I don't know. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, "Ah," like a pebble. He asks the second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he responds, I phileo you. Is Jesus rubbing it in his face? He's asked him once, he's asked him twice. Now he's going to ask a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, Jesus doesn't say agape, he says phileo. And it's almost like Simon gets caught, it's almost like Simon gets busted. I couldn't live up to the kind of love that you wanted me to have. I wasn't the rock that you desired for me to be. I'm a pebble, I'm a grain of sand on the beach. And So now when Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me? Tells us that Simon was deeply offended. He was hurt. He says, Lord, you know everything. Of course you know. For me, it's, it's not the kind of love that you called me to have because I'm not always going to be steady. I'm not always going to be a rock. Sometimes I'm just a pebble. But yeah, I, I love you like that. And be careful here. When Jesus changes the word that he says for love, he's not saying, do you even like me? It's as if Jesus is inviting Peter to say, Peter, whatever you've got, I can work with that. Agape or phileo, whatever you have, bring it to me. Because really, I I don't need your stuff. I welcome your stuff. I receive you. I love you. But you're invited. And whatever you got, whatever you have, I can use that. Peter had been trying for years to be perfect, to live up to the title of rock. But Jesus didn't need him to be perfect. Can I bring you back to when Jesus named Peter for the first time? In the book of Matthew, when he's looking at him, in the book of John, it tells us that it was intently, he looks at him, he says, I say to you that you're Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Again, we we said this. And so, if we read that, we hear that, and we think, "Okay, Peter, you better be steady. God's going to build a whole empire on you." But again, I, I just, I just want you to see something tonight. In the Greek, Jesus calls him Peter, and he calls him Petros. Everyone say Petros, and it means rock, but it means a rock that can roll away. It's a small stone. And then when he says, upon this rock, he says, Petra. And it sounds very, very similar, but they're actually distinct words from one another. Petras is this stone that could roll away. But Petra, it is a stone that comes from the ground. It's a mountain. You might be a rock. You might be a pebble. And yes, you might roll away. But Jesus is a mountain. You belong on the mountain. Your home is on the mountain. You might roll down. You might fall. But the mountain doesn't depend on the rock. The mountain produces rock. The mountain is a home for rock. You belong to your mountain. You belong to Jesus. He welcomes you. Whatever you got, come on, bring it in. Whatever you got, bring it in. Stop pretending to be perfect. Be honest about your process. Jesus knows you. Peter says to Jesus, you know everything about me. Of course you know the way that I love you. Of course you know that I'm limited in my love. But you, Jesus, you are eternal. You are infinite. And the love that he will pour into you will never stop. And that is the way to confidence. That is the way to security. That is the way to comfort. That is the way to warmth and food that will last you forever, every other charcoal fire in the world will eventually burn up and we'll just have to find another one to stay warm for a little longer. But Jesus Christ is the consuming fire. He is the mountain. He is the rock. And while we are not needed, we are welcomed. We are invited. So what if someone rejects me? Jesus receives me. So what if someone condemns me? Jesus redeems me. He's a mountain, and he's not going anywhere. Jesus came back, and he's not leaving your life. Jesus came back, and yes, it means you get eternity. Yes, you get heaven. Yes, you get life everlasting. But even today, you got your mountain. You have Jesus. You have an all-consuming fire who won't just warm you, but will feed you. Who will love you and comfort you. He's not going anywhere. Let us stand and sing and worship this God. Amen.